Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, and we do it from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, we will have two guests in serial, not parallel, and that always confused me regarding Christmas tree lights. Thankfully, we're doing something simpler here than wiring a Christmas tree. Uh, yes. Anyway, they will be heard with us across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us first will be physician assistant Megan Kreft of Portland, Oregon, who was fired by a Catholic hospital for practicing consistent with Catholic beliefs about human dignity. And then after listening to Megan's story, we have the famed Dr. Ashley Fernandez, pediatrician and medical ethicist from The Ohio State University, who's going to provide commentary on Megan's story and try to help us understand sort of this misplaced primacy that patient autonomy has come to hold really in the minds and the actions of far too many people and organizations. The idea for this episode actually came from our co-host, Andrew. Uh, he received a text from a, a practicing Catholic physician-assisted student, and he wanted to know how to respond uh, when patients requested oral contraceptives. And he, he was being told, well, if that's what the patient wants, that's what the patient gets, patient autonomy rules. And it's a common question that medical PA and nurse practitioner students have, especially at, at our Catholic Medical Association events. Uh, and I, speaking for Andrew as well, I think that we would hope that an episode like this could become sort of a, a tool that that others could put in their tool bag and use when they feel like they need to confront these kinds of issues. You know, maybe this will become a prerequisite for the boot camp each year and that'll set the stage for incoming students. But make no mistake, whether you're a student or not in Catholic healthcare, you need to have this tool and be ready to use it. In reflecting on how to put together this episode, I was reminded of something I learned about in the last few years that's called the platinum rule. We all know the golden rule, but the platinum rule says, do unto others as they themselves would have done unto them. And I was fascinated to read that people state that this overcomes the so-called insensitivity of the golden rule of Matthew 7:12. Who knew that Jesus was insensitive when he said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you? So we plan to, uh, to ask Ashley about modern writers who see the golden rule as wrong-headed and the platinum rule as its corrective. But I further notice the platinum rule could also be a wolf in sheep's clothing. It might seem good, but if one follows it to the end, we see that autonomy becomes the greatest good. But he's the ethicist. I'm not, and I'll let him educate all of us. You know, for oh. me, and listening to these two great speakers, uh, I hope that we... And our listeners can take away that uh, this is noble work, and we uh, have noble, or I should say, um, worthy adversaries, and we need to be prepared. Uh, as St. Paul reminds us, we need to be able to give an account for the faith within us, and we've got to be able to speak up for the teachings of the Holy Church because she's right. She's always been right. She'll always be right. Um, and this is just another example of the things we've got to be prepared to do as, as Catholics in healthcare. Before our break, because we really want to get to these two strong uh, guests, I will pose our medical trivia question of the day. And not surprisingly, the theme, the topic, the category is medical ethics. Now, the American Journal of Bioethics was established in 1999. The Journal of Medical Ethics in Great Britain, published by the British Medical Journal, gave birth to itself in 1975. But before these two came the oldest and first Journal of Medical Ethics in the world in 1932. Your question, what is the name of the oldest journal dedicated to medical ethics? And here's a hint. It's named after a man who was physician for King Henry VIII, founded the Royal College of Physicians in London, taught both Erasmus and St. Thomas More, and then became a priest in the year 1509, 15 years before he died. But to get to the answer, you got to listen to the rest of this tremendous show here on the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 
Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. And as we mentioned earlier, we're joined by Megan Kraft, who's a physician assistant or PA, as we in the doctor world often say. Um, she's practiced in the field of family medicine. Uh, she attended Oregon Health Science University for her medical education and master's in physician assistant studies. And she's currently pursuing additional education as a Creighton model fertility care practitioner and member technology medical consultant, just like me, I must say, uh, <laughs> through the St. Paul the Sixth Institute in Brown beautiful knows. Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, she was born and raised in Oregon, where she currently resides with her husband, Isaac, and almost three-year-old son. And they are expecting child number two this fall. Megan, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Well, we're glad to have you, and we're even more glad to have your story. <laughs> Thanks. Well, let's start off because we've already told our listeners uh, about your greatness, uh, but why don't you tell us about your experiences training to be a physician assistant in Oregon and what that was like and what that entailed? Yeah. So I initially saw my call to practice medicine as a vocational calling, really rooted in a desire to serve others and accompany my patients on their journey towards ultimately health and healing mind, body, and spirit. And I recognized that there was this need for medical care that respects the whole human person and the sanctity of all life from conception to natural death. I felt like I had eyes pretty wide open pursuing my medical training at OHSU. I assumed that the expectation would indeed be to leave my faith at the door and not let it compromise patient care. Um, and I came head on face to face with the culture of death in my um, PA education. I even had a preceptor who refused to work with me during my clinical year due to my religious beliefs. How tolerant and, of them. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, exactly. And ended up actually working with the um, Title IX office at OHSU to create a formal religious accommodation that would allow me to continue in the program and finish my education without partaking in services that violated my conscience and the dictates of my faith. So as you can imagine, I finished up PA school um, coming up about two years ago, and I felt really burnt out, honestly, from all the ethical dilemmas that I was facing, all the pushback, and just being confronted head-on with the culture of death. So I pretty much ruled out and felt that it was impossible for me to pursue um, any clinical practice in uh, primary care or women's health due to these dilemmas that I was continually facing. And, and did you feel that that was fair, that that was right? Did you feel like, you know... Megan Kreft could be that person? <laughs> you know, I felt really discouraged. I didn't think that it was fair. As a PA, we receive a very generalist training and PAs are heavily utilized in the primary care setting due to our cost effectiveness as well as increasing access to care. And so it felt like there was a whole field of medicine, several fields that I was precluded from even working in, which was very discouraging. You know, not only is medical education challenging and difficult for Catholics and those who are pro-life to pursue. But then once you're out of school, there are very few employers who actually are supportive of practicing um, providers practicing in a way consistent with their faith and conscience. And so um, although I was burnt out, had ruled those out, I did recognize that there was a need, especially in these fields of medicine, for providers who are committed to providing life-affirming care to their patients and upholding the sanctity of human life. So Megan, for our listeners who may be students or contemplating being students, let's back up a little and give us a, an example of what confronting a conflict like that looks like, because people are wondering what they wouldn't let you off on Sunday to go to mass. Help, help our listeners understand exactly what that could look like. Yeah, exactly. So a big part of my education was primary care and packed into that is a lot of women's health. And so you know, in a typical um, clinical day, many patients will come in and a common thing that's requested is birth control. And so I uh, let OHSU know that I wasn't going to be prescribing or um, be involved in patients receiving hormonal contraception. I wasn't going to be involved in abortion um, services or referrals, as well as anything else that violated the Catholic Church's teaching on the sanctity of human life. So another issue that would come up I remember one of my clinical rotations, there was um, a young child being brought in for hormone replacement therapy for gender transitioning that I excused myself um, from. But we were expected to you know, place IUDs, Nexplanon, be involved in all of that. And that was, um, I made it pretty clear, was not something that I was going to participate in. So after running that gauntlet of training, being burned out by all that confrontation, 
I, I remember that was awful going through that. What job did you then seek and accept? Yeah. So like I said, I was burnt out. So I initially had my heart set on working in a medical specialty, kind of to sidestep having to deal with this stuff on a day in a day out basis. Not that there aren't ethical dilemmas that we encounter and not that these other specialties are opportunities to evangelize or integrate our faith into our patient care. But I eventually ended up opening um, up my job search to family medicine and women's health and found a position in family medicine at our local Catholic hospital system at an outpatient clinic that happened to be in the town that I grew up in. And I figured, you know, even though, um, and this is Providence Health and Services, even though I didn't think that they were a bastion of um, Catholic healthcare, I at least figured they had to be at least tolerant, tolerant of my insistence on practicing medicine that was consistent with my Catholic faith. Because they're supposed to follow the ethical and religious directives put out by the United States Council of Catholic Bishops, or known as the ERDs. And that gave you some solace, didn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yep. So I was offered a position in family medicine as a physician assistant at Providence Medical Group, Sherwood, again, an outpatient primary care clinic. And I was delighted in reviewing my proposed employment contract to find a section of the contract that explicitly stated, and I'll, I'll quote it for your listeners, Clinician understands that all Providence facilities, including its hospitals and clinic, are Catholic facilities, and the clinician agrees to conform to the Providence Health and Services mission and core values and the Roman Catholic moral tradition as articulated in such documents as the ethical and religious directives for Catholic healthcare services. But so you found out that that was false advertising. Yeah, exactly. I, I remember reading this and thinking, this is too good to be true. You know, I understood that likely there wasn't universal adherence to the ethical and religious directives within the organization, but I was reassured that I, not only would I be tolerated in practicing according to the dictates of my faith and conscience, but I was actually required to. So I accepted the position. So Megan, spoiler alert for our listeners, just because there's the Catholic logo on the sign, the hospital may not be Catholic. We've talked about that on this show with several guests, but it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to confront it in real life as you did. But you thought you had the answer because of uh, this statement. So move on and tell us what happened next. Yeah, exactly. So my first inclination that anything was awry in my clinic was I received a list of procedures and providers that provided those uh, procedures before I even started practice. And on that list were uh, IUD and Nexplanon insertions, vasectomies, and the prescription of Plan B. So this is specific to my clinic. I was actually really surprised how transparent and nonchalant the clinic was in advertising these services that they provided that were explicitly contrary to the institution's policies. I had a physician recommend I refer for an abortion within the first few weeks of me being there at a patient request a tubal ligation and I found out that the organization had a contraceptive quality metric um, as well so what did you do when you met this I mean did you talk to someone did you do something did somebody say we don't like you anymore <laughs> So I realized I needed to have a conversation with my clinic manager. I thought it went without saying. I didn't think that I needed to clarify my um, practice preferences as a Catholic practicing within a Catholic healthcare system. And she was fairly receptive to my beliefs. She recommended I follow up with my supervising physician, who was our medical director, as well as Providence's ethicist. I had a conversation with the chief mission integration officer of the organization who told me when I um, highlighted that the ERDs were not being integrated as part of the practice that, well, we just don't police providers. It's not practical. We can't police everyone. At this point, I reached out to the National Catholic Bioethics Center and was put in contact with Dr. Joseph Zalot um, and alerted him to my concerns and also just asked him the practical questions. How do I navigate these requests for services from patients that I don't provide and that the organiza organization purports not to provide? And he walked me through step-by-step -step how to address this, particularly in the realm of medical bioethics pertaining to referral versus transfer of care. And so you did this and yet Providence wanted to fire you. Why? What happened? Yeah. yeah. So I ended up talking to my medical director who expressed that contraception was a huge part of women's health. She was concerned about patient satisfaction scores and clinic ratings, having me see patients and not provide these services, and also expressed that the expectation was that every woman of childbearing age coming into the clinic, no matter what question or what chief complaint was to be asked the question of if they wanted to become pregnant in the next year, and if they said no, that I would be expected to counsel them and recommend birth control options. 
Um, I was quickly alerted to the fact that I was prohibited after this from seeing any woman of childbearing age. This cut out the patient population of females 12 to 50. And this was a population I cared a lot about. And I realized that the reason why I was no longer able to see women of childbearing age was because of how I would handle their request for hormonal contraception. And it became apparent that the clinic preferred positive messages about contraception being relayed to patients, which in my mind was a huge red flag in the area of um, informed consent. I actually ended up um, at this time deciding to pursue training at the St. Paul VI Institute. I went to my clinic director to have my continuing medical education approved through the organization and was told it could not be supported or approved because it wasn't relevant to my job since I didn't see women. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, Megan, what do you help us and our listeners? What do you think accounts for a Catholic institution not behaving Catholicly? Yeah, yeah, no, great question. I think a common thing that comes up is this whole notion that many people have bought into that we can't push our beliefs on others and we can't let faith be a conflict of interest or compromise patient care. Um, you know, an excuse that was repeatedly brought up was we don't police our providers. The provider patient relationship is private and sacred. But if they were policing you. There was a double standard there that I, yeah. that I noticed. And, you know, I was even told by their ethicists that Providence allowed tubal ligations for women who couldn't afford more children and that that was cons actually consistent with um, Catholic social teaching um, and that that was part of concern for the poor. So really this one of the highest values that kept coming up was the value placed on how the patient felt about their healthcare encounter. Did they get what they wanted? Were they comfortable? Did they feel supported? Will they come back for further services? But really as providers um, and those in healthcare, we have a duty to speak truth and have difficult conversations with our patients and advocate for their health. You know, I can think of several um, instances where, you know, I'm talking to a patient about weight loss or smoking cessation. They probably left the, the exam room not feeling super supported or like they heard the message they wanted, but I have a duty to, to advocate for my patients and share, um, share the truth. So so what, what popped the boil? What is it that led them to say, you're out the door, Megan? Yeah. So as you can imagine, I was probably a thorn in many people's sides at this point, less than six months into my first clinical practice. But I had a patient that um, during this time of flux, when they were deciding to restrict the patients I could see to no longer include women, I saw a young female for a follow-up visit on an, um, a chief complaint that was um, not related to family medicine or sorry, family planning. And she asked for um, plan B prescription. I told her that I didn't provide the service and I didn't refer for it, yet I offered her other medical assistance and support. She ended up asking me do you not prescribe plan B for personal reasons or is this Providence policy because it's a Catholic hospital system? And I mm. didn't hesitate at all to say it's actually Providence policy. As I stepped out of the room to um, order some labs, my, um, I realized I couldn't submit a lab order because my medical director was currently in my visit chart prescribing the medication to this patient. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. So I was then kind of what, what broke the camel's back was I was called to a meeting a couple weeks later with our medical regional medical director and my clinic uh, director. And I was told that I had traumatized the patient for not prescribing what she had requested, that I had broken the Hippocratic Oath, that I had done harm. And I, I came to realize, yes, this patient was experiencing trauma, but she came into my exam room having started to experience the trauma of the situation she was in, fear of an untimely pregnancy, concern for STDs, and then the social implications of connecting with an ex-boyfriend. So where, where that ended up going was ultimately I was required or instructed by ultimatum of threatened termination to sign a performance expectation document that stated that if a patient requested services I didn't provide, that I must refer them to another Providence provider. Obviously, I couldn't sign this because it violated right. um, my conscience, my faith, but also my employment contract. Wow. So you've, you then left. You've then you've since settled with them in a mediated settlement. You cannot reveal the details of it, but you are permitted to speak freely about what happened. And yet you have something ongoing with the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights. Tell us where that stands. Yeah, so we had a complaint. I worked with the Thomas More Society, a religious liberty law firm, and we submitted a complaint to the Department of Health and Services um, Office for Civil Rights 
rights. And I was actually I've had a conversation with one of their lawyers and they expressed concern that Providence um, Medical Group was receiving federal funding while um, there was concern for possible religious discrimination in my case. And um, the last I heard from them, they said that they would be in touch with me soon um, to follow up on that. And hopefully there'll be follow up in the National Catholic Register where we can find an article about Megan's story uh, toward the end of June. Megan, one last question. What advice would you have for listeners who are healthcare professional students and want to practice according to the Catholic faith? Yeah, so I'll leave your listeners with a quote that I find great comfort in. It's from St. Teresa of Calcutta. She said, God has not called me to be successful. He has called me to be faithful. This is comforting because it calls us to be faithful to God with what is in our purview. We don't need to be worried about the things that we can't control. Um, but I would say education is key. Steep yourself in the teachings of the church, particularly uh, regarding the sanctity of life and bioethics. Familiarize yourself with the ethical and religious directives for Catholic health care. Seek out resources and support, such as the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Don't be afraid. Speak up. Ask questions. Seek support. And take heart that the beauty and truth of our Catholic faith is consistent with science and what is best for the human person, including our patients. You're not alone, and God is always faithful. Courageous. Catholic PA, Megan Kreft, thank you so much for being with us on Dr. Doctor. And we'll be back shortly with an analysis and more wisdom than we deserve from Ashley Fernandez. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not. And their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. And welcome back to our second guest interview today with Dr. Ashley Fernandez returning to Dr. Doctor. He is... He does a lot of stuff. He's an MD, PhD, so he's a double doctor at The Ohio State University College of Medicine. Uh, he speaks for himself, but he just won an incredible award. He got the highest teaching award that the graduating medical school class at Ohio State University gives in May 2020. He was named the Professor of the Year. He's a pediatrician. He's a medical ethicist. He has a PhD from Georgetown University in the great Edmund Pellegrino uh, helped to teach him and forum. He was CMA National Mentor of the Year in 2015, and he lives with his wife, Shruti, a family physician, and his two sons in Dublin, Ohio. Ashley, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Hey, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me again. It's always, it's always good to have a Dr. Doctor on Dr. Doctor. All right, as we devolve. Ashley, <laughs> what would, where, we, where do we start with Megan's story? What would you like to say first? First thing I'd like to say is I hope all of your listeners understand what a courageous young woman you have just heard testimony from. There are not many people that could bear that kind of suffering with grace. It's a great example for me. It's, I just, I, I told her she's my new hero now. Amen. Amen. It's a great example for all of us in practice. And, and it, you know, the, the, the final outcome is still in flux, but the witness it has, um, that she has shown is absolutely incredible and is going to bear a lot of fruit. So that's number one. So Ashley, how, how does something like this happen? I mean, practically speaking, how can this be? Well, I think it's a challenge in a Catholic healthcare system because both in the secular world and in the Catholic healthcare world, particularly when people are not faithful to the teachings of the church or don't pay attention to it as much, they want to build this narrative that what the church teaches is impossible to do. And when a Catholic institution finds someone like Megan, who's, who's actually defying that narrative mm -hmm. and is not crazy, is normal, is at the top of her game clinically, it's just an unsustainable situation for them. They can't allow that counter narrative to be out there because up to this point, they've said, well, well, the reason we can't do you know, a lot of wringing of the hands, the reason we can't do these things is because no one can do them. And so what I found from my experience is that the reaction to faithful Catholics in healthcare from Catholic institutions can actually oftentimes be worse than in secular institutions where that same expectation doesn't exist. Why is that, Ashley? Why, 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 why do we hurt our own more than others? <laughs> That's a good question. I think there are a lot of people, the, the sort of philosophy of secularism 
has entered into Catholic healthcare. That doesn't mean that that takes place everywhere, but it does mean we have a fight on our hands um, in, in even places we thought were safe places or safe places for Catholics to be. Wow. Um, and, and I think, um, I think that's a lesson for all of us. So Ashley, we've talked, Tom and I've had numerous guests, and we sort of talk about this phrase, worshiping at the altar of autonomy, and that autonomy has become the greatest virtue worth pursuing in the secular world. How does this experience with Megan sort of help to illuminate that discussion on patient autonomy from an ethical perspective? Yeah, I mean, tying it to Megan's story, you can see that there are patients that wanted a certain thing, regardless of what the moral implications for that for themselves or for Megan was, and they were willing to force her, um, including her supervisors and, and, and by patient demands, that some of the patients as well. What that shows is that this supremacy of autonomy is rooted in a deeper philosophy. It's not, sometimes I think to myself, it's not even that people are balancing autonomy versus other principles, mm. right? So at Georgetown or anybody that's taken an elementary bioethics course, they talk about the four principles of autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. And there's a, supposed to be a careful, decided weighing in the secular bioethics world about those principles. But now it's almost as if autonomy has become the only principle. Mm. There's nothing else real about those other principles except what you're autonomous will grants it. So beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice only have value because you choose to make it so. So I can't, I can't go to Tom as a dermatologist and demand a biopsy. And I think few thinkers would suggest he's ethically obligated to give me the biopsy I'm demanding. Yet if I demand contraception, he's somehow ethically, de it's demanded of him. How do right. we get to this point? Well, I think that's the contradiction. I think people who support that secularist view of autonomy don't have an answer for that. Mm. Um, and what they'll do and the way they get around that is to try to separate out um, the medical decision-making from moral decision-making. So they will say, well, in the case of a person demanding a biopsy, that is purely a medical decision. And in the case of someone demanding from Megan plan B or, con you know, contraception or referral mm -hmm. for an abortion, that's strictly speaking, a medical decision only. Mm -hmm. And she is bringing in, or uh, any faithful Catholic is bringing in a moral decision-making uh, aspect, which has no place in. Ashley, in, um, one of the favorite lines I've heard in all of our recordings of Dr. Doctor was from a fellow ethicist of yours who's an internist in Iowa named Loris Calgen. I don't know if you know him. Oh, yeah. And, yes. and he said yep. that every conversation is a moral conversation. Would you agree? I would agree with that. I mean, if you think about every human act is by definition, what, what, what St. Pope John Paul II called an actus humanus, that is a truly human act, has will, intent, and reason. And so just because it happens in a doctor's office doesn't, by that fact, make it a non-moral act. The removal of a suspicious, you know, we're talking derm. So the removal of suspicious <laughs> mole, um, yeah. is, it, is it, though we may not think of it, is actually a moral act because it's fundamentally based in beneficence in this idea right. that you're trying to protect or help or heal mm -hmm. the human person. It wouldn't matter if we were talking about removing a dent from a car. It wouldn't matter nearly as much, but because the sort of substrate that's being acted upon is a human person, it's a moral action even if we don't think of it that way. So I was trying to see that in, in everything that even someone I disagree with believes is a good, there's probably some nugget of good in there. So is there any relationship between this principle of, of autonomy and a Catholic social teaching principle, such as respect for the dignity of the human person? Yes, I think there is. I think, first of all, well, well let me back up and say that if um, someone doesn't believe that there's anything real outside their choices, then the relationship is that autonomy is your dignity. And that is what has oh. happened in secular bioethics. bioethics. Oh. So let me try to unpack that just a little bit. If the only thing on the materialist anthropology or the secularist anthropology, which says that there's nothing transcendent about the person, in fact, there's nothing transcendent at all, we are just random collections of atoms, 
Our choices are the result of those random collections of atoms having a reaction in our brain. Then what we come up with is choices. That is what is real. And therefore, freedom becomes choice. And to deny someone a choice that they make is essentially a denial of their dignity. Their dignity becomes their autonomy. And I'm not the only one who's, you know, who sort of put it this way. Actually, writers like Steven Pinker um, and Ruth Macklin, who have written some very famous papers on, one of them was called The Stupidity of Dignity, (laughs) argues that there's really no difference between your choices and dignity. I mean, so, so said differently, the secularist would argue your your dignity doesn't come because you're created in the image and likeness of God. It comes to the extent that you have the ability to be autonomous. Yes, and to act. You, should yes, you and to act that, on those should, choices. Yeah, should but, that be taken from you medically in a car accident or something, you're no longer an entity if you can no longer be autonomous. But then this comes head head up against Megan's autonomy. So why should she give up her autonomy for these patients' autonomy? Well, again, so that, that, that's an excellent question. Again, that would pose, I think, a bit of a, a, bit of a dilemma um, <laughs> for the secularists because they, they really can't explain can that. It. How, right. How is that not a violation of her dignity? I think what, they, what that would sort of redound then to is the doctor or in her, the healthcare provider-patient relationship. And what is that role? And I think that's something that, you know, people, what, what, what is the, the, the physician or the PA or the NP vis-a-vis the patient? Are they in a salesman type of relationship where they're selling a product and a patient has a choice between different products that are being sold? Are they in what I call the sort of the cosmetologist role where they're offering you different hairstyle and you can like it or dislike it? And, um, and, and with respect to those professions, I mean, a cosmetologist, if you tell them, I want this color hair and I want you to do an updo, they will do it for you. Now, some of them with ethics would actually say, no, that doesn't look good on you. I'm not going to do that. But even in those instances, we recognize there are some times where people be like, ah, that's, but they will probably still do it for you as long as you give them the money. money. Or are we in a healing relationship in which the healthcare provider and the patient are actually care about one another Mm. and the healthcare provider has to, yes, take into account a patient's preferences and, and respect that, but not let it completely dominate that relationship. And if you give patients a choice between the salesman model, the cosmetologist model, or the healer model, all of them will choose the healer model. Well, you know, I thought Megan said something interesting in that one of her supervisor types said that prescribing the contraception was actually consistent with Catholic social teaching. And I don't know about you, but whenever I hear someone use that phrase, it usually turns out to be they're pro-abortion, and, <laughs> and they've they've somehow they've somehow um, hijacked actual Catholic social teaching. So because someone is teaching it and they're social and they call themselves Catholic, doesn't mean it's Catholic social teaching. <laughs> Absolutely um, not. But but how could someone, even mistakenly from your perspective, make that leap from actual Catholic social teaching to it's okay to contracept or in the plan B case, abort? Well, I think they take the, the short answer is that most of them don't understand Catholic social teaching, which is, um, seems like, again, that's what people are doing now, right? Social justice just becomes this word social yeah. and this word justice. And they just put it, oh yeah. Yeah, I'm a social just, you know, I mean, people have been talking about social justice principles, particularly in Catholic thought for a thousand years, um, but nobody wants to go into it. In the case of, of people trying to make this connection with Catholic social teaching, they just simply don't understand that the fundamental basis of Catholic social teaching is human dignity. That is what society is founded on. And if you violate an individual person's human dignity for the sake of an end, um, that is not following Catholic social teaching, no matter what that end is. So just to take the example of Megan's supervisor, who talks about what she's really saying is, you can't afford a child, we're helping you to reduce poverty Hmm. by contracepting, and therefore we are aiding Catholic social teaching. And what it's essentially saying is, the end of Catholic social teaching, yes, is a reduction in poverty, that is a good thing, but it is using any means necessary to get to that. By that same rationale, you could justify infanticide for her other children and say that is consistent with Catholic social teaching. You could justify abortion 
and say it's for birth control purposes and say it's consistent with Catholic social teaching because it ultimately will reduce her chance of poverty, mm. which is an outcome of, say, uh, you know, a desired outcome of a just world. Um, so the means and the ends both have to uphold Ashley, principles of human dignity. Your mentor, Dr. Edmund Pellegrino, wrote with a co-author, Martin uh, Darcy, that the locus of decision-making has shifted from the doctor to the patient in the last 20 years. And they wrote this 10 years ago, so in the last 30 years. In fact, autonomy has become the major thrust of modern bioethics. How did we get this shift from it being the doctor to the patient instead of this mutual decision-making, the healer model? Yeah, I think there's a deeper philosophical or anthropological um, deterioration that has happened in the last 30 years or so in which secularism or the materialist premise that all we are are atoms has taken root, that things that are religious can be important, but are just extra things added on to the human person and not essential to her being. And now we are left in a situation in which this principle of autonomy has become absolutely dominant. And I say, I'm, I, I wrote this in a book chapter, but, but essentially what, what we are in a situation um, is, is that autonomy is either one of two things, it has become either infallible, in which case, no matter what you choose, no one can say it's wrong because it comes from you, hmm. or unassailable, in which case a doctor, a PA, or an NP can be like, well, that's not the right thing, but I can't do anything about it anyway, so here's your prescription, or here's the procedure. So infallibility or unassailability is a very, very dangerous thing in a profession that professes to heal and look out for the best interests of the patient. So I, before I get into practical handling of this situation, I want to find out from you if my little insight is on track or not, this whole platinum rule, golden rule thing. I mentioned it in the introduction. You know, the golden rule is thought to be outdated now by secularists. It's insensitive. You know, do unto others as you would have them do un, unto you. But instead, the platinum rule is better. Do unto others what you want them to do to you. So is this really a backdoor uh, wolf in sheep clothing way into autonomy? Yeah, I think it is. Well, first of all, let me back up. Whoever said that the golden rule is outdated, man, I can't wait till they face Jesus on Judgment Day. <laughs> he's oh, he's going to have a good he's going to have a good time with that. Um, yeah, because he was really insensitive, you know. Um, but but let me just say that that I think the what the platinum rule suggests is that what it, it, it has in it a string or a thread that suggests subjectivism, right? So the way to best treat people is the way they want things done for themselves. Now think about that. That gets to the, what I was talking about, that unassailability yes. or infallibility of autonomy, right? So whatever they want, the best way you can uphold their dignity is by doing what they want. And it makes no reference to what the content of what they want is. So freedom becomes choice. In the golden rule, on the other hand, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, it's implied within there that there's a commonality that people share. The only ah. reason that the golden rule is rational is because it suggests that there's a commonality that, oh, well, of course, what I would want, the fulfillment that I would want, the flourishing that I would want is the same thing that this other person would want. That it's, so it suggests there's a commonality, it suggests there's a solidarity or unity between persons, and therefore it's rational to follow the golden rule. That is suggests a moral objectivism which doesn't exist in the platinum rule now let me make one other clarification which is that catholic bioethics and all bioethics should still pay uh, some heed and a great deal of heed and a great deal of weight to patient preference to what the patient wants but that is all in the context of the right and the good so it's not what the patient wants in absolute value it's something to consider, and it's a very weighty thing to consider, but it must be weighed against medical benefits, against the physician's conscience, against moral um, benefits and burdens, um, against social context, and all those other things that doctors, PAs, and NPs think about almost instantaneously when they make decisions about treatment. Ashley, this brings us to the original email that Chris and I got from our co-host, Andrew. And here was the question, and now can you answer this question? And that is, how to explain to a practicing Catholic PA student why they do not need to prescribe oral contraceptives just because of patient autonomy 
even though that's what they were instructed to do? What is the practical way for them to respond, both understand and respond to teachers and patients? Well, I would say, now I'm writing a paper about this, so I don't want anybody to steal this idea. Ooh. I've been working on, on these three sort of three sort of rules for healthcare providers when they're thinking about conscientious objection, okay? Rule number one is we're never, we should never refuse a person, okay? So no matter what, and this is the, our role as physicians, NPs and PAs, we need to accept people for who they are and where they are and never refuse them as persons. Number two is we may sometimes be called to refuse a practice. And by, by, by having that as rule number two, you're making this distinction between person and practice. Simply because your conscience doesn't allow you to do X doesn't mean you reject them. The way they banned Megan from seeing all women of childbearing age is to suggest that if you take that sliver, which is contraception, which is not even all of women's health, it's only a part of women's health, it's not the central element of women's health, certainly, and I think you could make a good argument for that, but, but to, that's suggesting that they are deliberately confounding those two things, practice and person, okay? The third rule is this, when you cannot provide a practice, always provide an alternative, even if the alternative is simply the presence of yourself. And that's something Megan was willing to do. Mm. She said, I'm still gonna be your patient, I'm still gonna see you through this, even if you don't agree with my advice, even if you do something else. I mean, we're called, even if a woman has an abortion, against our advice, Catholic, Healthcare providers should see that woman without judgment upon her return. I would, so I would tell any, any student, keep in mind those three rules. And then, in, for, then to how you operationalize that isn't a script something like this. I'm, you know, first of all, by acknowledging that you care about the person. So what I would do is I would say something like, you know, I know you've asked me for this. And I first want to just tell you that I really care about you as a person. That's what I was called to do. So you acknowledge that you care about them as a person. And then I would say, I hear you and I understand why you might want X, Y, or Z, but I cannot in good conscience, bring up that word, offer X, Y, or Z. Let me tell you why. And then you explain why. So I think the, the patient has a right to know why, and that's part of informed consent, as Megan suggests. And then you would tell them, listen, I, no matter what you decide to do, I'm still willing to be your physician after this. So I want you to know that I'm not going to judge you. I am not going to not see you after this. But in other words, just be as authentic and real with this person as possible and show them that you care. And I can guarantee you, if you tell a patient, hey, if you give a patient two choices, one is, I know you want this. I don't agree with it, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, just because you want it. Or you tell a patient, I know you want this, but I care about you. And in good conscience, I can't give it to you. But let me tell you that I'll still, I'll still see you no matter what you decide. If you give a choice for a patient between those two options of a healthcare provider, they're going to choose the latter every single time, every single time, because they will know they want a doctor or a, or a nurse practitioner or a PA that actually cares about them, not that just gives them something they want. Yeah, I would agree completely, Ashley. I, you know, in my my practical interactions through the years, uh, I've been accused, as Megan probably has, by our detractors of being dishonest with patients. And I love the way that you said those rules because I, I don't say to the woman that Megan was seeing, "There's no such thing as Plan B." Right. <laughs> uh, you know, if she says to me, "Could I get an abortion?" I say, "Yes, you could get an abortion." You could take a chainsaw and cut off your legs if you choose to, but I don't recommend it. And if you'd like <laughs> to, I'll give you a long list of reasons why I don't. But I love the way that you characterize that because it's not withholding information. Right. It's interpreting information. Right. And that's what people come to us for. If they didn't want our interpretation, they'd use Google. Right. And I think in job interviews, I think with patients, I think Catholic healthcare providers should not put things in the negative. Like, this is what I won't do for you. Mm. I'm sure Megan knows this already from her experience. This is what I will do. Will this do. is what I'm bringing. Um, that, I think, is one of the, the biggest travesties of, of Megan's story is that the decision that Providence Healthcare made hurt patients. First of all, it hurt women by, by hurting diversity. You know, people on the left always talk about how diversity in and of itself brings something positive every single time that you have a diverse group of people practicing together. And yet they wanted to make everybody think and act the same. So it hurt diversity. 
It hurt women by hurting diversity. It hurts medicine by removing people like Megan from clinical situations where they could be needed and who would have been excellent in every single other aspect of her field and would have provided high quality patient care. And finally, it hurts women's choices, right? There may have been women who wanted a natural approach mm. to, fam to appropriate family planning, who may not have wanted hormones. And now you've just taken the, maybe the only person in that entire healthcare system who could have provided that medical service out of commission. So it, it's, it's, all, it's such, such a shame and shame on them and shame on Providence Health for doing that. Um, but hey, it, Ashley, in our last yeah. couple minutes, you know, there's a, a growing national movement of establishing freestanding Catholic medical clinics committed to following the, the ERDs, to following teachings on human dignity. How important is this movement? What do you think about it? I think it's um, excellent. Any time that we can have a consistent culture of life within a healthcare system, it's a benefit to patients. And I've said this over and over again, that Catholic healthcare provides something that secularist healthcare often does not. And that is this view of the human person that is transcendent. Now, this is not to say that within secular systems, of course, you have wonderful physicians, nurses. You don't have to even believe in God to treat the human person like they are a creature of God. But it is an important sign and can be a sign of contradiction in our society today to have a system, a clinic that says, this is our philosophy. You are a child of God from the very beginning and to carry that through. Now, that being said, I work in secular systems and I think there is also a place for Catholic physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners and PAs within those systems as well. Again, the diversity argument I think is an important one. We offer something, we offer a perspective that you wouldn't have otherwise if we were not there. And if we provide excellent healthcare, so much the better. You know, well we, we interviewed early on when the Office of Civil Rights at HHS uh, started to become active a few years ago, someone who worked there. And she said that patients deserve the opportunity to have a physician or PA who believes what they believe about human life. That's right. That's right. And I think, I think it's not um, an either or option, which is how the secularist right. world and in bioethics, they're always trying to portray it like this. They're, here's religion and here's science. Here's mm -hmm. medicine and here's the spiritual part. And it's just not an either or proposition. The, the physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, and nurses that I know that are faithful Catholics, they always know the medicine. They do their best to know the latest, even if they don't prescribe contraception, for example. I know OBGYNs and people that work in women's health that still know everything there is to know about it. You have to. It's, um, the, it's the apologetics mean, of secular competence that C.S. Lewis talked about. It brought about his conversion when he found out that he went for the best book on a subject. Inevitably, it was a Christian who wrote it. So we need to be on top of our game. Ashley, what's the, the last thing you'd like to leave with listeners? Be courageous. Be like Megan. I think we're going to try to brand some t-shirts like that. <laughs> Ashley buy, I'm, I'm first in line to buy one. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, thank you so much for being with us on Dr. Doctor. I can't wait for people to get a chance to hear this. We'll be back with our wrap-up after the break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. And our regular listeners know it's time for the answer to the medical trivia question. Tom, what is the oldest medical ethics journal in the world? It is called the Lineker Quarterly, named after Dr. and later priest father Thomas Lineker. And it's the official medical journal of the Catholic Medical Association. So you can go and Google uh, Lineker Quarterly, that's spelled L-I-N-A-C-R-E Quarterly, and see what we have been up to. Well, Tom, this has to be one of the most exciting ethical editions, I think, that we've produced. And why not talk about an ethical medical journal there? But yes. it really, it was, a, it was a terrific discussion, I think. Oh, uh, Megan is a courageous Catholic woman, and we need more like her. And I think patients want PAs, nurse practitioners, and physicians like Megan. You know, I think she is the stuff modern martyrs are made of. I've never encountered a more uh, courageous young person uh, than Megan. And, you know, I would say to listeners too, 
from fighting similar fights in women's health, I think some of the patients who maybe like me the most disagree with me the most. Wow. They're, Why is that, Chris? You know, they're not necessarily Catholic, but I think they respect the fact that if you're willing to say what you mean and live by the things that you say you believe, even if they disagree, they respect that integrity. Uh, and so for, for students and especially other providers, be they physicians, PAs, nurse practitioners, nurses, or dentists, um, use this example that be courageous, stand up, say what is right, uh, and, and purport church teaching. You'll never go wrong. And I have heard Ashley talk about his three rules for engaging a patient that asks you to yes. do something you think is wrong. And, and he emphasizes not, this is what I will not do, but this is what I will do. His first rule, never refuse a person. That's right. Oh, um, accept them where they are, how they are. Secondly, sometimes refuse a practice. Mm -hmm. And third, always care, always provide an alternative, even if it's just your presence. Because he says, if you show them you care, you understand what they're asking, you hear them, but say, in conscience, I can't do this because... And then come back and say, but no matter what you do, I'll still be your physician. That is such a positive example of how to handle a very difficult situation. You know, I found that the most moving. And I found that third principle strikes me as, as the penultimate Catholic principle. No matter what happens, I'm here. I'm going to stand in the breach and I'm going to care for you, even if I can't do what you want. Whether I don't, maybe I don't have the skills to do what you want, but I'm not leaving you. I'm going to stand by you. That gave me goosebumps when he said that. And we will always care for you, our listeners, who we thank for being with us for this episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the studios, the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of our show with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And please send us your questions. Be bold, be courageous, criticize <laughs> us if it will be helpful, uh, and, and tell us what you liked and what, what changed your life. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.